Our first scripture reading comes from Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Now let me explain to you why this reading is so important. We will be reading, well we will be preaching from one single proverb in the sermon. And we know that the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. But it is important for us to understand, wisdom is not a what. Wisdom is a who. As you listen to this passage being read, and as you follow along in your own Bibles, I want you to notice the very personal language with which wisdom is described. And not only myself, but many other commentators have all affirmed that it is here the Lord Jesus Christ who is being spoken of in this section. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 12, reading to the end. Take heed how you hear. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, and all the judges of the earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice, that I may cause those who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting From the beginning, before there ever was an earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, Then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always 
before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. Now therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All who hate me love death. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Let us go again to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come as students in the school of Jesus Christ. We are persuaded, O Father, that this book of Proverbs is the words of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is His voice that we hear in these Proverbs. Now give to each of us attentiveness and diligence to hear His will for us. And give the Holy Spirit that all things which are Christ may indeed be given to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have one simple proverb from which we will be learning tonight. And that is Proverbs 10.4. Proverbs 10.4. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Advancement in anything corresponds to effort. God has ordained that ordinarily, if you want to maintain or advance in any matter you must diligently work for it. There may be lazy people in the world who somehow strike it rich and get things that they do not deserve. But such situations are exceptional and no rule to us. Christ's word to us in Proverbs 10.4 is to be diligent in the work that he has given us to do. Because faithful work will be rewarded with riches. Maybe with money. Most certainly with blessing. But the lazy man, the slacker, the undiligent, he will meet with poverty. In this life and in the life to come. So now we have before us two characters. One is a lazy man who meets with poverty. 
The other is a diligent man who meets with riches. And so let us consider these two characters, one by one, their personalities and the respective fruits of their works. So let us begin with the first man. He who has a slack hand becomes poor. The slacker, the lazy man. This is a man who is characterized by laziness. He does work that is not all that good, and it is not all that useful. If he does do work, he doesn't do it timely, and he does just enough to say that he did the work, but nothing more. We can see some equivalents in our own lives. If you work in an office setting, you might recognize this guy. He always shows up ten minutes late. He is gone ten minutes early. He's always watching the clock, just waiting for his day to be done because he has no presence of mind for what he is doing. You watch his attitude. He thinks his job is simply paycheck insurance. He doesn't do anything well, and his work never comes to a supervisor on time or done very well. And it is a drudgery to everyone else. Bosses, managers, and other employees, they're always having to double-check his work. And everyone is amazed that for as long as this guy has been with them, they are still running over the same grounds with him, still trying to make him profitable, and nothing is happening. Now, this man is going to have excuses. And if any of you are in the professional world, you'll be bombarded with many ideas on what work and workplace culture should be like. It is usually always blaming the employer for whatever goes wrong. So if you were to talk to the slacker, you would ask him, you just, why are you so inattentive to your work? He might have his excuses. Well, I should have better pay. I should have better benefits. I want flexible hours. And I don't want this mandated return to the office either. I don't think my bosses are really all that concerned for me. It is true that there are many things that bosses can do to make the workplace to be a better place than what it is. And they are key to making things run productively. But sometimes the problem is much simpler. The employee himself may actually be a lazy slacker. And that's why nothing is getting done. He who has a slack hand becomes poor. What is going to happen to this guy? Characterized by always doing the bare minimum. Characterized by never having anything that's done on time. I can tell you one thing. The bosses hate paying him. Because every project that he puts his hands on just goes into the red, so to speak. It is always a loss. One of these days will come a meeting where the bosses are going to think about this employee and they're going to say to themselves, it doesn't matter what we have done for him. 
the training doesn't matter, the supervising doesn't matter, the help doesn't matter. We just can't make this guy profitable. When can we get someone to replace him? And they will do it as soon as possible. Or perhaps if they are fed up enough, they will just all say to themselves, you know what, let's just cut him. We're already doing all of his work anyway. We might as well have him off the team. What's that man going to do when he goes and he looks for another job? He might get some unemployment that can sort of hold him up, but he's going to run into problems. He may just go from interview to interview to interview. Maybe he'll get coached on all the right things to say in an interview, but maybe finding out that he's not landing any positions because everyone has a suspicion that he talks to. They'll listen to him and they'll think there is probably a good reason that this guy was let go from his last job. What then is going to become of all of his prospects, all of his years in his industry or in his line of work? Because of his own slack hand, he is on the road to poverty. We can apply this same principle in other areas of life. The most immediate sounding application to the proverb seems to be in work, but we can apply this to other areas. What about the student? A student, he does just enough to meet the technical requirements of his coursework. He says, all right, I finished my homework, I'm all done. Yes, but all he might have done was just try to get a passing grade and did not make an attempt to understand what he really read. He might have fulfilled the requirements and ran his eyes over 50 pages of text and said, ah, I read it. But did he ask questions of the text that he read? Did he ask himself if he really understood it? Or did he do just enough to confidently choose between A, B, C, and D on a test or fill in the blank? If that is all that he has done, he is in for some real shocks when he comes into the work world. If all he wanted to do was just make sure he got a C, he is in trouble. So you imagine this university student, and I wish this were hypothetical, but you imagine such a university student, he finally comes into an internship, and he is actually on the job doing the work that he has been studying to do. So the weeks roll by, and it is time for the bosses to give an evaluation to his university concerning his work. And they may say, yeah, we saw that he made decent grades, and that was impressive, but this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's a slow learner. He doesn't catch on quick. And we've tried advising him, and we've tried helping him, but he just doesn't get it. The guy, it just seems like he's just trying to breeze through. He lacks initiative. He doesn't have any heart for what he is studying. What then is going to become of those tens of thousands of dollars that he may have spent to get a university education? Because in the end, employers want to make money. 
and they are looking at this intern and they're saying, he's not going to do it for us. That intern might end up in a situation where despite all the time on that job, he has got no job references. Nobody is going to vouch for him when he goes to an actual interview for a full-time permanent position. And all because he had a slack hand in his studies. We can ask the question, what does this look like in other areas? Because not everyone in here is in the professional world, and not everyone here is a student. But the word has great application across all life situations. We can apply this to family life. What about dad? What does a slacker look like here? He comes home, he thinks his work is over, and he just gets on the computer and just vents about all the political happenings that are going on. He is inattentive to his family. As a matter of fact, everyone kind of feels like they're just in the way of dad and what he really wants. He is hit or miss when it comes to family devotions. He is hit or miss when it comes to discipline. And he is not available as a counselor to his wife concerning all the things that she dealt with during the day. What do you think the outcome of this man slacking in his duties as a husband and a father is going to come to? The housewife, she manages the kids only enough to keep them quiet so she can tend to other things she would rather do. She's not diligent or attentive to the teaching of the children, nor to training, nor to discipline, but just treats them as though they are all in the way of the things that she really wants to do. What's coming down the road in dealing with your family with a slack hand? Impoverishment. Maybe not in money, Maybe not in job prospects, but truly in impoverishment. What happens in the marriage? The trust between husband and wife becomes broken. Every little thing triggers. Every little thing becomes a miscommunication. And they just don't know how to talk to one another. And all those years in which they should have been building up trust between themselves and their children... It is all behind them. And when the teen years come and the adult years come and it's time for them to start being their own person, they start thinking, well, mom and dad were never really attentive to us in the first place. We're probably not going to get it now. So who else can we look to for authority and for guidance? They're going to go to whoever whoever they think is suitable in their poor and very inexperienced judgment. And you can imagine the heartbreak that could come from that. Proverbs 10.1, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Nothing is more impoverishing to a parent than rebellious and wayward children. And it can be all the worse. I have seen it with others. It can be all the worse when someone realizes it's because of my lack of diligence in the work that I was given to do. 
Brothers and sisters, I present to you the man who works with a slack hand. There again may be people who are not diligent and they strike it rich somehow. Somehow in Providence, maybe a good job comes to them or a good position, but I tell you, it is only a matter of time before reality comes to roost. Such employees end up having to go elsewhere. Such fortunes just dissipate. And everyone will just see this was the exception. This was not the rule. So my friends, take warning from the slacker and I ask you to consider. Do you not know this from your own experience? Haven't you seen employees like this, students like this, families in the way that I have described And especially if you're getting your start in life, whether in work or in family, pay close attention. Learn from both good examples and from bad examples what you ought to be and what you ought to do. Because you are now at a great chance to avoid all of those things. The second part. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. Who is the diligent employee? They do their work and they do it when it needs to be done, but also they do it well. And not only do they do it well, but they are always striving to do it better. Let's go back to the office. This employee, this diligent employee, is fully engaged in what he has been given to do. And he doesn't need flexible hours or the superb salary in order to do it. His work is unto the Lord, and that's the motivation, all the motivation that he needs. Does he need to come early? That's not a problem. Is he going to have to stay late because there's an important deadline? Well, that's not a problem for him either. He knows the policies, the procedures. He's creative. He thinks of better ways to do his work, more ways to save money, better ways to serve clients and satisfy customers. And if need be, he will study and ponder his work even when he is off duty. And he is determined to be well-pleasing to his bosses and provide quality service on time and under budget. And even if he is not there, maybe he's new in his profession or he's new on the job, I tell you one thing, he is striving to get there. And he is going to succeed with such an attitude. One day, the bosses, they will get in a meeting and say, well, you know, uh, John, who we've assigned this work, we see he's doing great work. All of us agree. It comes to us when we need it. We see that it's good work, it comes on time, and we also see if something is wrong, he just takes responsibility and he corrects it. You know, we can give this guy more responsibility. We can trust him. So let's just see if he'd be willing to take on a little bit more work for some more pay. Let's just propose that offer. The student going back to our study. 
The student who is concerned not only to do the work and get it to his professors on time, but he wants to make sure it is truly his best work. And so, this one, he does not study just to say that he's fulfilled the requirements. This is the kind of student he will maybe look at another book. Maybe he'll go back over his reading. Go through that paper one more time and make sure that it is correct in every fashion that he's really thinking through. He'll be a participant in his classes. He'll ask good questions. He'll meet with his professors during the office hours to find others more understanding. He'll contact professionals in his field and ask them questions. And when it comes time for this university student to go to his internship, what's going to happen? He's going to be a smash hit with his bosses. He's going to have the learning curve that everyone else has, but he is going to catch on very quickly, and he's going to prove himself to have an intuition for his work that nobody else has. He's going to be far ahead of the curve in the work that he is doing. And what may happen at the end of that internship? He may not even need to job search. They might just say, we love your work. You are an excellent worker. You know your field. How would you like to just come on board with us? Here's here's what we're offering you. Do you accept it? The hand of the diligent makes rich. Come back to the family. Dad comes home and he doesn't just kick off his shoes and relax, but he understands the work really begins. He talks with his wife. He talks with his children. He seeks to find out all he can about their day. What's going on? Where they've been? What's gone well? And maybe where things need help. Family worship will be observed like clockwork unless there is some really good reason that it cannot be done. His wife has many things she wants to ask about and dad will be the counselor and the help for her. And so the years roll by and the wife and children have no doubt that dad is there for them. And the wife, yes, her job is exhausting and tiring. I take absolutely nothing away from that. I am amazed at the work of diligent mothers. She is determined, despite all of it, she will do well for her kids. She will not only teach them, she will study how to teach them well. And what are the best things to teach them? She will put aside many things she'd rather do in order to do what is good for them. She trains, she instructs, and she disciplines as is truly needed. And when dad comes home, she doesn't just throw everything on him, but she understands until the very end of the day when the kids are in bed, until that point, mother is still mother. What's going to happen years down the road? Husband and wife are going to have a very strong bond with one another because they have been diligent in their respective callings and they have been diligent in working with one another. 
And as a God-appointed team, they have provided a very good upbringing for their children. Their children, when they come to their teen years and when they come to their adult years, they will say, Mom and Dad were not perfect, but they were there for us. They loved us. They cared for us. They nurtured us. We will make them to be our counselors in our new stage of life. They will have their own trip-ups. They will have uh, their own bouts of folly, but by and large, they're going to say, we can trust mom and dad to be our guides. They will go into the world with a good spiritual foundation. And if they are not converted, they will generally be found to be faithful and hardworking children. I'm going to be clear here. I understand there are exceptions. I understand that there are children who despite truly God-honoring parenting, they may actually go off into the world and be a terrible grief to their parents. Such really can happen despite best efforts. And yet the Proverbs do exhort us to give all diligence to our marriages, to our families, to our children. Because in the main, this is what can be expected with ordinary diligence. But Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes a glad father. There's no greater riches for a mother and a father to see that their children, they love the Lord, they are walking with the Lord, and even if you're still waiting on their conversion, you see that when they go out to the world, they are faithful, they are hardworking, and they are principled, and then you can see it passed down to their children and their children. There is indeed great riches for diligence in parenting. Generally, the man who is more diligent is going to see more reward. And again, I ask you, go to your personal experience. Test it by people that you have known at work or in their homes and tell me, do you not find this to be the ordinary case? And if it is a testimony to your own conscience, then simply believe it and abide according to it. I grant to you, there are exceptions. There can be diligent men. There can be a time where there's just hard providences and even the diligent and faithful don't see fruits for their works. There can be times of persecution where everything is truly against a faithful man or woman. But don't let the exceptions become your rule. But as you listen to this, I ask you, what about you? Perhaps in your work you think that you ought to be paid more. You think you ought to earn more. You might think that maybe in your schooling or whatever else or in your family you ought to have more respect or more honors or whatever else. Let me ask you, do you show ordinary diligence so as to merit these things? Are you the kind of person who deserves the honor, the respect, the pay, the privilege that you really think that you ought to have? If you're listening to this account of the slacker, then I encourage you, you found where the problem is. And I would encourage you, you simply go home and you go before the Lord 
and you have your Bible out in front of you and you ask yourself, what do I need to do in order to come out of the category of the slacker into the category of the diligent? And there will be reward for it. There may be things by this point, you can't do anything about them. That happens. But at the same time, if you will be diligent today, you are on the path to the riches that are promised in this proverb. Again, be realistic. Going back to the workplace example, it's just realism. Clients pay for servicemen that they think are actually servicing them. Bosses will pay for work that they think is actually profitable. Don't ever just rub it off and say, oh, it's just persecution, it's just because I'm a Christian. Be sure that before the Lord you can say, your work is actually good. Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. But maybe you look at yourself and you say, you know, I see that there are areas of general diligence in my life, but I do see places where I can make improvements. Well then, bless the Lord for it. Make those improvements. And perhaps you can say, you know what? In all honesty, in the fear of God, I can say that I am in the category of the diligent. Bless God for it. All of grace, that you are what you are. Now, Go before the Lord and ask still, are there areas where I can improve? You have got nothing to lose by doing these exercises, only something to gain. Certainly, there will be temporal rewards in this world, but even when those are lacking, you may be sure of this, there will be reward in glory for all your diligence. Now, someone looking at verse 10-4, they may have questions. The hand of the diligent makes rich. And you might say, how can the Bible set before me an incentive based upon riches? Because when I look in the Bible, I see all these warnings against riches. We see that riches are called deceitful. Jesus calls them unrighteous mammon. And James says that it is the poor in the world who are usually made to be rich in faith. So then, how is it that riches can possibly be the incentive for my diligence? And it is a very good question. And we will unfold an answer to this. But let's just think about money right now. Because chances are, 95% of us, that is what's going to come to your mind first. Money as the reward for your diligence in this proverb. What's your perspective on money? Do you think that you own your money? You don't own your money. It has been entrusted to you as a stewardship. You are a steward in the house of God. And he's given you a trust. And if you remember, 
One day we are all going to die and we are going to give an answer to God for our stewardship of all things that he has entrusted to us. Now how does that change your perspective on this verse? Now what do you think about riches? One of the promises of this text is that those who prove themselves to be diligent and faithful stewards of what God has already given them, the Lord finds freedom and ability... I want to be very careful how I say that the Lord sees fit to reward with a greater share of stewardship. And so if the Lord sees a man is good with his money, he's prudent, he's frugal, doesn't overspend, uh, he uses it for truly good causes, uses it to advance the work of God in the world, it's no wonder if the Lord may actually reward with a greater stewardship of funds. The Lord can trust him. But there is also a certain kind of character that is needed for that kind of trust. There are rich men in the Bible. Think of Abraham and think of Job. Abraham was an exceedingly wealthy man. But he did not have a vice grip on his riches or on his prospects. When the Lord comes to Abraham and he says to him... I want you to uproot your entire business and I want you to set out on the road and I want you to keep going. I'm not going to tell you where you are going, but when you get to that place, I will let you know. He's an exceedingly wealthy man. Multitudes of livestock, multitudes of servants, many business people, if they heard that, they would say, are you insane? My connections are here. My prospects are here. This makes no business sense at all. But Abraham just simply packs up and does what the Lord says. It is that simple. And it's no wonder that the Lord would trust this man to be the father of the faithful in biblical history. Job was also an exceedingly wealthy man. But one day, the Lord allows Satan to not only take his family, but take his house and take all of his livestock and take all of his riches. And Job is simply left poor, destitute, and penniless. And what does Job say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And what happens at the end of Job after the trial is all done and Job has learned his lesson, the Lord entrusts him with double of all the wealth that he had before because he looked at his servant Job and he said, Ah, yes, I can trust him. And so let us understand, only those with proven character may be entrusted with such a reward as that. Sometimes the Lord withholds money in order to test. I encourage you, pick up, a, pick up some biography about George Mueller and you watch the example of a faithful man who trusted God for provision each and every single day. But there are other times, there are other times the Lord simply cannot trust somebody with a great stockpile beyond what they have got 
and so he does not give more. We all have good intentions. We like to say, oh, if the Lord would just give me $10 million, I'd love to give $9 million of it away. All right, wonderful. But what were your plans for the other $1 million? What were you going to do there? Sometimes all we really want to do is just keep a nice handful for ourselves. But as one, so- as one song says, it's not what you give, but what you keep that the Lord is counting. In the end, money is providentially necessary for doing good in the world. You want to build a well in Africa? You need money. You want to go to a missions trip in Japan? You need money. You want a full-time and faithful pastor? You need money. Or you simply want to feed your family? You need money. But what you must do in order to understand Proverbs 10.4 is to understand, again... Riches are a stewardship. They do not belong to you. You must be in your mind that the Lord is free to give and the Lord is free to take away. And if a day ever comes where he wants to remove it from your hand, he should not feel you closing your fist as he tries to do it. But riches are not only money. Let's broaden our horizon here. What if you're in a job that doesn't pay the best, but you are in a job where you serve the underserved, or you help the impoverished, or you provide opportunities for those who have few or who have none? For example, maybe men getting out of prison, and they need to be recalibrated to the world around them. Isn't that worth something? You can enrich someone in that way. And in that way, you need good, intelligent, diligent, hard-working people for even those kind of service jobs. And the hand of the diligent will certainly make rich, even if it is not you yourself lining your pockets. But even if your job isn't that kind of work, some people could have a case of conscience and say, well, I'm an engineer, or... I'm an accountant or I'm a lawyer. I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is helping people who are already well-to-do be even more well-to-do. Can I really serve God in this capacity? Can I really say that I am making rich in this situation? Yes, you are. Because it is perfectly lawful and legitimate to use your work to enrich the lives of others. In your job, are you not creating a better life and a better situation for clients and for customers, for co-workers and even for your bosses? The world will say, oh no, you should not be concerned with your bosses. The word will teach you differently. It is good to create a good living situation or even wealth for others. You can... Simply be a blessing to your company, co-workers, those in your community. You can be involved in something that generally increases wealth or technology or anything else. And you are still serving the Lord. So long as you are truly in a lawful calling. But best of all, 
And I think this one is worthwhile because there will be some who will struggle with the fact that they are not called to ministry, maybe not yet, and they may just never be called to ministry. But your ordinary diligence in your role as a worker or as a student or as a mother creates riches in the world in this way. You exhibit the goodness, kindness, and grace of God. And how is that? We live in a sin-cursed world. Part of the curse on humanity is that our work would become futile. Adam would work the ground and would only bring up thorns and thistles for him. But the Lord in his love and kindness provides merciful alleviation from the curse. And so what happens when an employee is productive at his job? The boss may have a hundred other things that just seem utterly futile. And he looks at this one good employee and says, Ah, will you look at that? Someone I can count on. Someone who is trustworthy. Someone who is honest. This is a good situation for me. Or co-workers, when they deal with him, say, ah, yeah, someone who doesn't gossip, someone who doesn't backbite, someone who's not trying to undercut everyone else. He actually cares about everyone else in this office. And we're not always having to pick up his slack. This guy is wonderful. Mercy, kindness, goodness of God in a sin-cursed world. That professor, he is delighted in that student. That one, while all the others just seem to be trying to slip by with a minimum effort, he says, ah, there's someone who gets it. God's mercy and kindness. That mother with her children. In a world when other children, it seems like they're becoming depraved with all the rest of the world, but when someone looks on and they see well-behaved and disciplined and principled children, they look and say, wow, there may actually be hope in the world at all. That is God's kindness, mercy, alleviation, and love to provide to a sin-cursed world some glimpse of his goodness and glory. You are God's common grace in a sin-cursed world. Therefore, what are you doing? If you're working at McDonald's, that is perfectly okay, so long as you're doing your work under the Lord, because we need people who can do it well, and it seems to be getting worse. Is your job title garbage man? We need you. What will we be without you? Garbage would just be piling up everywhere and we wouldn't know what to do with it. But you keep this world clean and spotless for the rest of us. The plumber, he's willing to do things that the rest of us don't want to deal with. That is God's merciful alleviation. Don't look at your job and say, it's just too lowly. It's not a lot of skill in it. You know, it's actually kind of filthy work. And it's perfectly okay. If that is the case, if you're doing your work as unto the Lord, it is a witness of God's goodness and grace. And is that not itself?
a rich blessing. We would be wrong to simply apply this to our temporary lives and stop there. We should not. But this has application to our spiritual lives as well. And you would say, well, I don't see that in the text. It seems to be about earthly labors and earthly rewards. How do you get this? Because Proverbs is not a book about earthly wisdom. This is not a book about relational shrewdness, how to win friends and influence people. The wisdom of the world is all concerned with this present life only, and that is a lot like figuring out the wisdom of the world is like this. How do we best arrange the furniture on a ship that is going down? You might have some really nice living quarters while you're on that boat, but in the end, the boat is going down. But God is a covenant God speaking to covenant people, and this is a covenant book that is not only concerned about God's glory in this life and caring for us in this life, but also in eternity as well. And so therefore, and also you look at other Proverbs, they do not make sense if you only think about this life. Treasures of wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. You say, well, I see all sorts of wicked people who prosper. You're right. Sometimes this life they do, but they will not prosper at the last day, and that is a promise. You must see this book as also having application to your spiritual life as well. And you must be diligent in your spiritual life as well. So on your spiritual life, your spiritual growth is a matter of diligence. In the ordinary course of things, if you are not diligent to grow, you are not going to grow. Think about the slacker. What does he look like here? Tell me if you think this guy is going to grow. He's very hit or miss in reading his Bible. And when he reads it, he forgets it. He can't even tell you what he read that morning. He makes no attempt to apply it to his own life. He just wants to say, well, I did my devotional thing this morning. I should be good. He comes to worship when he can make it. He's not paying attention to the word. And he's not thinking seriously about how it applies to his life. How he needs to glorify God, what needs to change. As a matter of fact, before he goes to bed, he'll probably have forgotten entirely what has been preached. Is it any surprise if this individual knows very little assurance, very little growth, very little holiness, and very little joy? And if I were to sit down with you and you tell me that you're struggling with assurance or you're struggling with holiness or whatever else, and I ask you, and you tell me this is what your devotional like is, I would just say to you, I found your problem. It's quite simple. You are neglecting the very means that God has given you for growth and grace. And you need to apply yourself more diligently. Dependent on the Holy Spirit, dependent on the grace of Christ, yet not I, but Christ working in me, 
yet nonetheless, these are the ordinances that he has given you. If you want to be spiritually rich, do these things. There's more I can say on that. I can't make every qualification I would want to, but that is one important key. The diligent man, though, in his spiritual life, he is determined that he will worship God. He will be there in the morning with his Bible on his lap so long as he possibly can be. He will be there in the public worship as often as he can be. And nothing but providential hindrance, I mean real things that cannot be worked around, disregarding those, he will be there. He will remember what he read. He will apply it to his life. He will monitor his own growth and grace. He will ask himself, what are his weak points? He will ask himself, what are his strong points? He will ask himself, what is my communion with God like in this time? Do I find myself growing near to him? Do I feel myself growing far from him? If it's this, can I find any particular reason for it? This man will certainly go through ebbs and flows... It will sometimes be up and sometimes it will be down. But by and large, you can expect that this man is going to steadily be growing in grace. And if that man does not reach a comfortable level of assurance and a good conscience and a sense of communion with God, if he does not get those things, I will be very surprised. And someone might say... This kind of sounds like works. Isn't this all about the Holy Spirit? I mean, don't we just simply trust and these things happen to us? That's a pervasive idea today. I tell you, it is antinomianism. Because God has never intended that growth and grace is going to come apart from your diligence. It is all sourced in Him. Absolutely, truly. It does not come from you. But nonetheless, your diligence is required. I can't explain it, but I will prove it. So I would encourage you, 2 Peter 1. You can turn there if you want, but this will be from verse 5 unto verse 11. Actually, I will begin at verse 3. We have here the power of God... For sanctification, it truly comes from Him. Then we have the diligent effort required of the Christian. And then we have the outcome. I won't expand on it a lot, just pay attention. As, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, 
to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says here, yes, it is all of grace and all of the power of God. But if you want grace, if you want greater grace, if you want greater holiness, if you want greater communion, this is the pathway that God has ordained for it. You take this way that God has given you, you may be sure you're going to have that great assurance and that great sense of blessedness and that great sense of entrance into the heavenly kingdom. But if you're going to neglect this way, do not be surprised if you are stumbling in your walk, if you are unmortified, if you are not living a holy life, if you lack assurance. Take it from the words, the inspired words of the Holy Scripture. How is all in your soul? Are you vibrant and alive? Are you walking in communion with God and you know it? Are you growing in holiness and are you dying to sin? I'm not asking if you've got these all in the very highest pitch that you can have them. I'm asking, do you see them at all? And do you see them progressing? If you're a new Christian, you may start off with very little. But it is indeed the grace of God in you. But as the Christian life goes on, you should be seeing more of this. If you are, bless God. It is the power of God in you. But if you are listening to the description of the slacker and you are seeing, you look in yourself, you see you've got very little assurance, very little holiness. You know that you ought to be progressing, but the reason you're not is because you're just simply not diligent. Well, then, my friends, you know you, what you need to do. Go in prayer before God. Have your Bible open before you. Confess your negligence to God and tell him, Lord, I am resolute to go in another direction. Give me all grace. Give me all grace to do this. But also, I am also resolute that this I am going to do. And you will recover. You will recover. I can't, again... I can't say everything on this matter I would like to say. This is worth a whole series in itself about how to grow in holiness. But I do pray that just something of this the Holy Spirit will use to help you. I said this morning about Jesus Christ. He does not call us to go anywhere. He did not go himself. He calls us to a life of self-denial, taking up our cross, and the reason that he can do it and have our conscience 
is because he himself did it. And the very good news is for this proverb, we have the very same thing. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Do you believe that these are the words of Jesus Christ? Do you know that the scriptures say that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God? Well, then it's quite simple. The book of Proverbs is his word to us. And here's another question we should ask. If this is his word and he does not sin and he's consistent with himself, might we perhaps see Jesus Christ living this out in the Gospels? Absolutely. Let us now go and look and see how Jesus Christ lived the diligent life and became, became rich. First of all, let's be clear. Christ is an ordinary man. When he came to this world, he came with a true body and a reasonable soul, like you in every single way, except for sin. He had to grow up just like you. He had to learn just like you. He did not come from the womb knowing all of the scriptures. He had to learn his Hebrew alphabet just like any other Jewish boy. He had to learn the scriptures from scratch. And he had to sit under teachers like any other boy in his age group. But we do see that Jesus Christ was immensely studious and diligent with what he was given. Jesus goes to the temple. His parents think that he is with them and they leave. And they come back in a panic and they find Jesus Christ sitting among the teachers. And he is asking them questions. But not just any questions. They are astonished by the questions that Jesus Christ is asking them. Because these questions do not only show that he learned the scriptures or that he learned the doctrinal or practical basics but they show that he has immense understanding of what they are all about. And all of this at age 12. And most astonishingly, his mother chides him and says, we were looking all over for you. We thought we lost you. And he says, don't you know that I need to be about my father's business? He caught on to his purpose well before his mother did. This can only happen if the Lord Jesus Christ had a fixed habit of diligence up until that point. And we learn in the book of Luke where this account is that it says that he grew in knowledge and in stature and in favor with God and with men. He had to learn. He had to study. He had to be diligent. And he was diligent. We know that Jesus Christ was faithful in his work as a carpenter. If he was not, it would have been a complete scandal and an embarrassment to his ministry. Many people today think that you make your business good by putting the name Christian on it. You make your business good by working as Christ would work. That's how you do it. But he was 
clear in integrity there. And when he begins his ministry, everyone is astonished. They say, never has anyone spoken like this man. The people are astonished because he speaks with authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Something about the word has gotten deep into his heart that nobody else had. Granted, he had a great measure of the Holy Spirit, but he was also diligent and studious. And so we see that when Jesus Christ gets to Jerusalem, the time when the sacrificial lamb is going to be tested, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and everyone else who's got an agenda against Christ, they come circling around like ravenous wolves with their trap questions to see if they can nail him somewhere. And they just simply cannot do it. And there just comes a point where they just say, we can't ask him any more questions. He trips us up every single time. We need to simply kill him. That is the only way that they could possibly think to overcome the Son of God. With lies and with accusations and a very illegal trial. I also ask you, could any man who was not diligent possibly carry out the work of mediation? To be a mediator between God and man? To be a propitiation for sin? To be the spotless sacrificial lamb? Even the most extraordinarily diligent man could not possibly do it. Every other man in Scripture, no matter how godly, how holy they were, they were marked by blemishes. Even Moses, the greatest of all the Old Testament figures, he wound up outside the promised land just because of one slip-up. But Jesus Christ, throughout the whole of his ministry, he is so imbibed with the Scriptures, he knows them so thoroughly, that he catches every trap. He avoids every temptation. He takes every out. He does not omit even one single duty. Every duty is done how it needs to be done, when it needs to be done, with the heart that it needs to be done with. And that only comes with practice and the knowledge of the scriptures and conscious walking before his father. I could not do that. And what about when he gets to the cross? How is he kept from sin even in that moment? I don't, I want to stop here just because I, I fear now to tread here now that this is actually coming out of my mouth. But we just have to stop and admire what man is this that could accomplish the work of redemption? It seems now a very, very small thing for me to say that the hand of the diligent has made rich here. Diligence does not even cover it. But diligent he was, and was he made rich? He absolutely was. What happens? He comes to glory, he comes out of the grave. 
And coming out of the grave was the testimony that he had truly kept the law of God and made propitiation for sinners. And now what is the reward of the Lord's servant dealing prudently as Isaiah 52 says? He is raised up to heaven, seated at the right hand of God to rule over all things in heaven and on earth. This is our wise and our diligent Jesus Christ. And it's more than that. Jesus Christ is the happiest man who has ever been or ever will be to all of eternity. Psalm 45, you have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The greatest reserves of joy and happiness are for Jesus Christ. The hand of the diligent has made rich. And not only for himself. Us too. Us too. We are made rich because of his diligence. Why do you not pay for your own sins, brother and sister? Because he was so wise as to be able to pay for them. Why are you not left to fulfill the law of God so that you may go into glory? Because he has done it for you. By his work as mediator, it is all yours too. Your sins paid for. His righteousness given to you. And so therefore... Everything that is your husband's is yours. By his work, by his diligent, you too are going to come to glory. The hand of the diligent makes rich, not only for himself, but for you to all of eternity. Brothers and sisters, Who would dare be a slacker when Christ was and still is so diligent in his work of mediation for us? What do we do? My friends, I would say first of all, abide with Jesus Christ, the very author of the Proverbs. It is he who can make you wise to have the kind of diligence that we have talked about this morning and is found in this proverb. You won't get it from me. You won't get this from any man. You need the great teacher, the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Abide in him. Come near to him. Have fellowship with him. And you will, just by holding companionship with him, become more like him. So go to him and tell him, Christ, I want to be like you. I want to be conformed to your image. Please, you promised it. You died for it. You resurrected for it. Will you please give it to me according to your covenant? Abide in Jesus Christ. That being in place, give all diligence in all the work that God has given you. First of all, to your own soul. Job says, I have cherished your word more than my daily food. 
Matthew 4, verse 4, Man shall not live on bread alone, but upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your spiritual nourishment is far more important than even your bodily nourishment. Important, but it is second. Seek to be strong in your spiritual life. Seek to grow in assurance. Seek to grow in communion, in holiness, and in mortification, and in all graces, and in joy. Make Second Peter verse 1 your ambition. What sensible person does not want that? Be diligent for the spiritual well-being of those around you. Husbands for your wives, wives for your husbands, mothers and fathers for your children, overseers for your congregants, teachers for all of those who are beneath you, whoever you have oversight over or you are responsible for, grow, seek to grow and be diligent to thrive in your soul because you cannot give to others what you yourself do not have. You simply cannot. Be diligent in the ordinary labors that God has given you to do. It may not be ministry. It may not be spiritual work, as some might call it. But I hope I've proven to you that it is immensely spiritual work, even if you are not sitting on a session, even if you are not standing behind a pulpit. Your work, if well done and unto his glory, is an, ex- is an exhibition of the glory, goodness, grace, and kindness of God in a sin-cursed world. Granted, All that you do in this life is going to burn up. You can look at all the major cities and all the great skylines. It is good to go by the Detroit skyline and say one day that is all going to vanish in fire. All the greatest works of men that have ever been. But what is done for the Lord absolutely will last for all of eternity. And he will reward it. And I assure you, you will be just as accepted as your pastor or as your elders in the calling that God has given you. I have said earlier too that we don't see the full thing in this life. The Proverbs are general principles. They make room that there can be exceptions. And we do see them. The diligent do not always get the full reward for their efforts. They don't always see all that they really should have for all that they've put in. But you be sure of this. What is done for Christ will last forever. And if you are rich in good works, you are rich in the Lord, and you will be rich for eternity. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, all glory to your name. All glory to your name. What a Savior. What a God. What an opportunity to be conformed to his image. Lord, indeed, these sermons pierce. They truly dig at our hearts. And we find many sins.
But Lord, we also find encouragements. We repent, O Lord, of our slackness and our lack of diligence where we have been so. And grant us your Holy Spirit that we may indeed repent and be turned and do as you would have us to do. But what we find in the way of grace, we thank you for it, O Lord. This was all your doing. Grant to all in this congregation that this will be the mark of every single life. That it be the mark of Pastor Keener, of the elders on the session, and of every member and every adherent who comes into this congregation. And Lord, especially, as they seek to grow in their own spiritual lives, grant that they will find by happy, joyful experience the hand of the diligent makes rich. And Lord, not on the authority of any man do we believe this, but on the authority of your word, that is, of your will given by Christ, spoken by the Holy Spirit. We ask these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.